Our passage tonight is 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 through 28, page 1174 of your pew Bibles, so I encourage you to, to open there. The, um, there are quite a few slides tonight, and so um, it would be good if you have this on your lap, but um, we'll have really most of the passage eventually up on the screen at different points in the sermon. So today we're concluding Paul's first letter to the Thessalonian church, and next Sunday we're just going to flip the page to 2 Thessalonians and start a study there. And 2 Thessalonians is only three chapters long, and so um, I believe in my schedule I have four messages on 2 Thessalonians. And uh, maybe a a little quiz question for you. I like to do these a little bit more in the evening, especially when we have um, kind of a lighter crowd. Um, Quiz for you today is what kind of church is the Thessalonian church? Is it a healthy church Is it a dysfunctional church, or is it somewhere in between? Uh, Let's see a show of hands for healthy church. So who thinks it's a healthy congregation? Okay, who thinks it's just full of problems, dysfunctional church? It's got a lot, it's a big mess. And who would say it's somewhere in between? So uh, a lot of bashful attenders tonight in in the service. Um, Don't want to raise your hands. (laughs) Maybe you don't want to be wrong. Um, it's a healthy church. Um, it's, it's a church that's, that's strong. Um, Paul says at various points, and like one part stands out in my mind, he says, of brotherly love, I, I have no need to, to teach you further because you're already living with love for one another in your church. And, and there are some issues that um, are coming up for the Thessalonian Christians. I mean, we have to remember the, the time frame that we're talking about here. I mean, this is a new church hearing the gospel of Christ, which is a new message for the world in a, um, a very large city, actually. Thessalonica is today the second largest city in all of Greece, and it was a very important, prominent city in Paul's day as well. And so um, a cosmopolitan city, lots of ideas, and so there's this, this church, presumably a pretty small gathering of people, that is trusting Jesus, is loving one another, there's a lot of harmony in this church, and so all things considered, it's doing extremely well, but they have some need for refining, and so the Apostle Paul is writing the letter, it's not a perfect church, but it is generally healthy, and so there's some confusion in the church about um, the end times, we could recall that uh, the end of 1 Thessalonians 4 and the first part of 1 Thessalonians 5 deal with those matters, and uh, and so there's a little confusion about some theological matters and, and really some more, some more technical matters. But overall, the congregation was loving and active and faithful to Christ. And so it's helpful to remember that as we read this list of commands in 1 Thessalonians 5. This is not the Apostle Paul reprimanding the Thessalonians um, really like he does for the Galatians. Um, um, the Galatian churches are really unhealthy. I mean, there is... Big prob- there are big problems theologically um, in the life and the, the conduct in the actions of the Galatian, Galatian churches. That's not really the case here with the Thessalonian churches. And so he's exhorting them, stay on track. Um, you're, you're seeking Christ. You're learning the word. Keep doing it. Keep it up. And uh, that's partly why I found it to be such a helpful letter for our church. I believe that uh, we all have room for growth and improvement as a congregation and as individuals, Um, but hopefully we can say 
like the Thessalonian church would have, God is blessing us with faith um, that, is, is, that remains you know, through the storms of life. So uh, having already prayed, let's read 1 Thessalonians 5, starting at verse 12 through to the end. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under the oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So as we read a passage like this, uh, it feels like the lightning round at the end of a game show, doesn't it? Where there is just a, a long series of um, short commands, each of which um, could easily make for a whole sermon. And so we could get a little bit lost in this list of commands if we lose sight of the blessing towards the end of the passage that we read. The goal of the commands is found actually after the Apostle Paul gives the commands. Um, and so it's in verse 23 of our passage. What is the goal of all these instructions? Now may the God of, him, of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. So as he's setting these lofty goals for the Thessalonians, the hope is that each person would be completely sanctified, made pure, made righteous in God's sight, that their whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of Jesus. And this is something that God does in the Christian. It's not something the Christian achieves on your own power, but we can see very clearly, he who calls you is faithful, will be faithful, he will do this, in you. May the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. So the God of peace sanctifies, that means purifies and improves us. He does this for the believer in every way. Before we work through the various commands Paul gives, we recognize that it's, it's really through union with Christ. It's God's work in us that brings about this kind of spiritual progress that would enable us to be blameless at the coming of Christ. So we should think of this blessing really as an umbrella over all of the instructions that the Apostle Paul gives. And we could almost um, read this blessing before each of the commands. 
And it would be a really helpful way for us to, to read any of the commands of Scripture, that, that God himself will sanctify you and, and keep you and, and purify and improve your spirit, soul, and body so that you're blameless. Therefore, for example, pray without ceasing. Therefore, um, do not return evil for evil, but be good uh, to your brothers and to everyone. So, so we can kind of think of this as an umbrella blessing over each of the individual commands. And this is the teaching not only of the scriptures, but it's confirmed in our confessions. Belgic Confession, Article 24, says that every person who's born again into a life with Christ will do what is good, will be sanctified um, increasingly as we move towards heaven, as we move towards perfection. Belgian Confession Article 24 is, is really one of my favorites because of the clear teaching on the Christian life. Well, what will it look like after a person is born again? Uh, the Confession teaches, we believe that this true faith produced in us by the hearing of God's word and by the work of the Holy Spirit regenerates us and makes us new creatures, causing us to live a new life and freeing us from slavery, the slavery of sin. Therefore, far from making people cold toward living in a pious and holy way, this justifying faith, quite to the contrary, so works within them that apart from it they will never do a thing out of love for God, but only out of love for themselves in fear of being condemned. So then, it is impossible for this holy faith to be unfruitful in a human being, seeing that we do not speak of an empty faith, but of what the Spirit calls faith working through love which moves people to do by themselves the work that God has commanded in the word. And so that reference there to, to do by themselves doesn't mean we do these things apart from the help of God. It means we do these things individually. We, we individually will grow in Christ, God working in our minds, in our hearts. So not only can a Christian live in a righteous way, but a Christian will give evidence of their regeneration and spiritual growth as you move towards full union with Christ in heaven someday. This isn't a, uh, what's called a holiness teaching. This doesn't mean that, that the Christian becomes morally perfect in this life, but this does mean the Christian will see moral progress in this life, being more and more refined, more and more sanctified, that you would be sanctified completely and kept blameless at the coming of Christ. So I hope this teaching encourages you. Um, sometimes we could think of the commands of God as, as kind of a weight on us, I recognize. That's um, maybe not to be too critical theologically, but that's, that's a more Lutheran view of the law, that there's grace and then there's the law, and it's called the, the, the gospel law distinction, and and at times the law could be presented just as shackles on us. And by grace, we're delivered from that. Um, but the Apostle Paul is very clear in, in various passages, including this one, that the law is not a problem. Our sin is the problem. And so as we think about the law of God, we have not only a call to repent, but we have also a description of the Christian life. And hopefully we can see in each of these laws we're making progress. Christ is at work sanctifying us so that we would live by his laws. So the God of peace, Paul says, will be faithful to transform your will 
your desires, your plans, your conduct, so that these laws will resemble your life. And so rather than getting discouraged when we fail, hopefully we can see, you know, maybe taking as one example, I'm praying more now than I I used to. And that's God's work in me, sanctifying me. I'm able to give thanksgiving to God more often than I used to be. And that's God's sanctifying work in my life. So we can see that the commands of Paul are are generally here grouped in a positive uh, group of commands and then a negative group. And by that, I, I don't mean good and bad. I mean, there are things he tells the Thessalonians to strive for and there are things he tells the Thessalonians to avoid, to say no to. So, uh, encouragements and prohibitions. And that's the, the grouping that we'll roughly use as we work our way through the passage. Just taking about um, one minute per command um, and really not much more than that. So, Paul starts with really positive commands in verse 12. Respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. So the Thessalonians would struggle at times with discerning which voices to tune out, which voices to heed, which ones to value. And so Paul says that they should respect those who are over them in the Lord. A trustworthy voice, a trustworthy minister, a trustworthy teacher of the gospel. Paul says, don't let your your suspicion, which sometimes is justified of false teachers, distract you from giving praise, encouragement, and support to the faithful ministers that are among you. Now that'll come up again with uh, not despising prophecies. One of the reasons that I love to preach at other churches is that it gives me an opportunity to, to go to other congregations and encourage them to do just this, to, to respect those who labor among them, who are over you in the Lord, who admonish you and esteem, to esteem highly those who do the work of the Lord in a church. And, and that's really what the Apostle Paul is doing here for uh, the church leaders in Thessalonica. He's encouraging them to give honor, to give support, and regular encouragement for those who care for their souls. Next, be at peace among yourselves. Verse 13b, the second half of verse 13. Be at peace. Does peace in a congregation happen by chance? Does it happen naturally? No. A congregation in a lot of ways is like a lawn. And if you don't take care of your lawn, um, the law of entropy says it's going to fall apart. It's going to get messy with weeds and overgrowth. It's not going to look good unless you care actively for it. That's how peace, unity, harmony works in a local church as well. If you just let the lawn go, you will not end up with a beautiful lawn. If you just assume the church will be at peace without any effort put into being a peacemaker, like Jesus talked about in his Sermon on the Mount, if you just assume these things will happen automatically or naturally, we will not enjoy unity as a church. But um, The Apostle Paul wrote in Ephesians 4, verse 3, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And so this involves activity, intentionality. 
The first two points of encouraging respect for spiritual authorities and then encouraging people to be at peace with one another are very tightly connected. Uh, Because haven't we seen it to be the case where there is um, almost sort of a rebellious attitude towards spiritual authority also comes a lack of peace in a congregation. And this breaks churches apart. But it requires our attention and our effort to keep the bond of the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace be at peace among yourselves the god of peace will bless us with unity when we strive towards unity with one another in christ and so thinking about the words you say even the things you think about um, are you striving towards peace in our church This is a question Paul prompts us to ask of ourselves, and I don't know if I can answer it definitively for you, but it's one that the Spirit would hopefully help you answer in the week ahead. Next, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. So the common theme here is that Christian ministry is done among imperfect, weak, hurting people. Some people in the church are lazy, we should admonish them to get to work. Some people in the church will be discouraged. Don't be surprised when people are discouraged. A good church will have people who speak words of comfort, of encouragement that would inspire people to keep faith in Christ. Some people in a church will be weak in all kinds of ways. Will be physically weak, emotionally weak, spiritually weak, uh, at times intellectually weak. And the church could be a place where all those people are helped. Help the weak. The ministry of Christ. (laughs) Not just to come and redeem us, to save us, to forgive our sin. Three words that really describe in a lot of ways the earthly ministry of Jesus. Help the weak. This type of ministry will require a lot of patience. And... um, Just put yourself in any of those scenarios as the one who needs someone to minister to you. You'll have days when you feel lazy. It's good in the church or good in a family as well where somebody can admonish us to get to work. You'll have days where you are faint-hearted. Hopefully we're a church where people would encourage the faint-hearted instead of discouraging them to get their act together. All of us certainly will also have days when we're weak, weakened by grief or by just fatigue, by circumstances of life, by relationships that aren't going as they should. The church is where such people are helped. One thing that that the Apostle Paul also wrote to the Galatian church is to carry one another's burdens and in doing so fulfill the law of Christ. To carry one another's burdens. This is the ministry of Christ. And so we shouldn't be surprised when God responds to our prayers for church growth or when God responds to our prayer for a vibrant Christian ministry and then all of a sudden all kinds of people who are very needy walk through our doors. It's the kind of ministry God wants us to do. To the lazy, the discouraged, and the weak. Those who are idle, faint-hearted, and um, in need of help. Now, the next is, starts kind of with a a negative command, but transforms into another positive one. See that no one repays evil for evil, 
but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. So when you leave your home to go where you go during the day to the grocery store or to um, see a, a child or go to work, when you leave your home, are you committed to do good to people? There's going to be evil done to you. There's going to be opportunities, temptations to repay evil for evil. But here we have Paul correcting that impulse. Always seek to do what is good to one another that is in the church, especially, and then to everyone that you meet. So while the worldly person will react to evil by doing what is evil, the Christian will have the opposite reflex. And um, increasingly in the Christian life, this should be like a reflex. So instead of um, evil being done to you or learning about some evil in the world and repaying that with evil thoughts or with even uh, evil words or, or, or impure actions, the Christian reflex is increasingly grace. Speaking the truth. Care. That person who is doing what is evil needs love. The person who's doing what is wrong needs the truth. That person who is doing what is obviously sinful needs the grace of Christ. And so that's how the Christian overcomes evil with good is, is first by recognizing, like the old saying goes, hurt people hurt people. Certainly we can see that in our lives, in our families, in our neighborhoods. The Christian reflex is to do, what is, to do good to them. Continuing, I, I think uh, verse, verses 16 and 17 here has warranted its own sermon uh, from me in the past. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. And so this is really the crescendo, the high point of the Apostle Paul's commands. Notice the constancy of each of these activities. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. So the Christian does not take days off. The Christian doesn't retire <laughs> from rejoicing, praying, and giving thanks. The Christian does not stop doing each of those life-giving activities that connect us more fully to God. This doesn't call us to just put on a happy face when we're grieving, when we're hurting. I think that this passage actually could be misused in a lot of circumstances. I, I know our grief share ministry is excellent at recognizing we're sad sometimes. You have to recognize we're sad. We're struggling, we're grieving, we're hurting. But the Christian, while recognizing that circumstances would be difficult, never allows those circumstances to overtake you so that there would be despair. But instead, the Christian, I believe and I've seen, um, and many of you who are even here, that even during difficult times, people can still have joy. It's not maybe happiness, but it's a, it's a confidence in the Lord. Can still have a life of prayer, praying without ceasing, can, can give thanks to God. 
during really low moments in life. That's the Christian um, response to good days and difficult ones. Now the negative commands, and even as we move into, um, start to uh, close off the passage here, it's worth noting that, that there are positive commands in the Bible, and there are negative commands. Sometimes it's just necessary for us to recognize that as our culture is so wrapped up in being um, positive and encouraging, sometimes we need to see also the Bible tells us not to do certain things, to avoid certain ways of thinking or lifestyles or actions. So there are behaviors, beliefs, and desires that we should not do. And the first one listed here, do not quench the spirit, verse 19. One of my seminary classmates once described quenching the spirit with a really helpful analogy. He was talking about uh, his life and, and his attitude at the time and, and had said, um, I feel like I'm quenching the spirit. And, and the word picture that he used was turning off a faucet. And I think that's really a helpful way for us to think about this imperative from the Apostle Paul. There are things that we can do that further open the faucet of the Spirit's work in our lives, that open it up further. Things like prayer and singing and attending church and intentionally serving people, each of those activities further opens us up to the Spirit's working through us. Like opening a faucet, the Spirit flows more fully through our lives when we're opening our lives up to His working. But the opposite can also happen, as my seminary classmate noted, that that sin closes that faucet. So for the person that's saved through Christ, our sin doesn't ruin our status before God, but it does tighten the faucet and quench the Spirit's work in our lives. It, it closes us off to seeing the Spirit at work in our hearts, in our minds, in our attitude, in um, the work that we do. So the Apostle Paul is saying, don't, don't close off the faucet or don't tighten it so that the Spirit um, is, is, is not working through you and in you. Next, do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good and abstain from every form of evil. So again, these could kind of sound like generic instructions, but if we apply them to the specific context of the Thessalonian church, we see that that this is a church where particular prophecies and evils are tempting them. And so the church has um, and needs a reminder to be careful about what they're listening to, what they're believing. There are so many options for false teaching, um, even in Thessalonica still today, certainly, that the church there um, was, was tempted at times to be overly cautious about receiving a word from the Lord. So the Apostle Paul is saying here, don't despise prophecies, but test everything. Um, a really good minister named D.A. Carson, a, a theologian, gave a little saying that is just like what Paul is saying here. He said, be open-minded, but not empty-headed. Um, discern, use the word of God, like the Bereans do in Acts 17, test everything according to the scriptures, but, but also be open-minded to what God might teach, might show you through a word from uh, the Bible, a word from a Christian believer. 
So with all of the options for false teaching, would be, we should be careful not to disp- despise all prophecies and just kind of, um, I will just stick with Jesus loves me, this I know, and try to get through life with that one. No, God is going to speak to us through his word and through the church to build us up. I think that we could fall prey to this error of despising prophecies in our church, maybe, maybe in our denomination too, where um, in our sort of reformed subculture, there's a lot of emphasis on theological precision. And um, that can be a really wonderful thing, but it can also at times block us from being open to hearing God's voice. So this desire from, for theological accuracy is generally a good desire, but taken too far, it can prompt us to despise prophecies from God. One example that I can think of where, where that could be maybe at work in a context like ours is valuing the wisdom of women teachers, which we should certainly do based on what God's word commands. There are prophetesses in the Old and New Testaments. Deborah, Elizabeth, Anna, come to God's people with a word from the Lord, a word of encouragement, a word that that spurs them on towards further faith. And in each case, those who listen to them are blessed. We think of Priscilla and Aquila, a husband and wife ministry team. They play an important role in the early church correcting Apollos because he lacked some understanding of the gospel. And so Priscilla and Aquila come to him with uh, correction. And so it would be quenching the spirit, it would be despising prophecies to dismiss the spiritual wisdom of any of these people because a woman is involved in the process of correcting or teaching or encouraging. If we hold so tightly to this belief that that, uh, the preaching role should be filled by a man, which our church does hold to and I personally do as well, we could at times, I think, lose God's prophetic voice in listening to somebody who has a good word from the Lord for us. Again, if we're obsessed with these, this theological precision, I think that um, particularly in our culture, um, we could dismiss what God might be doing, particularly among the women of our church and of our community. So, do not despise prophecies. We can say, do not despise the word of a prophet or prophetess, which are in the Old and New Testaments. Why? Because this is for our good, for our, the building up of our faith, for gaining a new perspective of what God has done, is doing, or has promised to do. So, the, the Apostle Paul also says, hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. This is a helpful passage in correcting um, a common issue in uh, broader evangelicalism and um, um, not to harp too much on the issue, but, but in the Christian Reformed Church today. Um, this morning I mentioned that um, we should be careful in offering words of, of rebuke for our denomination. I don't want to get too far into that routine, but to start the new year it seems good to assess some things. And so um, if there are particular matters that at times we fail in as a local church or as a denomination, I think it's, it's warranted to, 
to find scriptures that correct those things. And, and this is one of those scriptures for something that I've observed, very specific. I've heard from the floor of Synod the accusation that our denominational statement on human sexuality obsesses about just a few issues when there's so many other sins that we could be addressing. That was often said in Synod 2022 and Synod 2023 from the floor of Synod by people who were against what the Human Sexuality Report was teaching. They would say, we're thinking too deeply, or maybe not so much that, is we're thinking too much or too often about this area of life. And so that was the accusation, and really they would make that accusation thinking we don't need to be so precise about this matter. But brothers and sisters, the reason that we have been spending so much time confronting sexual sin is that our culture is constantly encouraging that form of evil. And so that's where the battle line is right now in our culture in a lot of ways. There's a time for confronting greed in our culture, which is present. A time for confronting dishonesty in our culture or stealing or hatred or racism. But, but the, the sin that is so encouraged in our culture, really almost seen as a given, is this, this sexual sin that we need to abstain from. So the Christian, Paul says here, abstains from every form of evil. And so where our culture encourages a certain form of evil, we have to, to battle it, to get serious about it. Consider the teaching of Question and answer 114 of the Heidelberg Catechism. And, and this, um, this Q&A really uh, confronts that attitude of why are we so focusing so much on just this one sin when there's all these other ones? Uh, this Q&A should have been the answer for some uh, CRC uh, synod delegates. Can those converted to God obey these commandments perfectly? This is after the Ten Commandments are taught in the Catechism. No, we can't obey them perfectly. In this life, even the holiest have only a small beginning of disobedience. Nevertheless, with all seriousness of purpose, they do begin to live according to all, not only some, of God's commandments. Abstain from every form of evil. And again, just, just backtracking to the blessing that we began with, that, that the God of peace will sanctify you completely so that your whole body, mind, and soul would be kept blameless. And so this isn't something we do in our own power, but God wants to do this in us. God, through his Spirit, will help you abstain from evil. That's good news. The final lesson that we can take away is um, a, a few verses that we could, we could miss pretty easily if you still have your Bibles open. Paul says, I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. And so he wants the whole church to be working on these things together. He wants the whole church to be aware of God's standard of holiness and purity. The final lesson is that spiritual growth happens in the church, in community, with other people, with other believers. The source of our spiritual growth is Christ. The location of our spiritual growth will include the church. I want to repeat that. The source of growth is Christ. One of the locations of our growth will be the church for every Christian. An active Christian life will yield an active church life.
without the help of the church, um, it's going to be difficult to obey any of these commands, to pray without ceasing, to give thanks, to abstain from every form of evil, to honor those who are in authority, to keep peace among the brothers. So did you notice how so many of these instructions have community applications to them? Um, and that's for our good. So we could read um, any series of commands from the Bible. We could read the Ten Commandments or 1 Corinthians 13's description of love or Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, which is, is very demanding on us. And if we, do, if we read any of those commands in individualistic ways, it can just feel like putting a huge burden on us. But brothers and sisters, these are laws we live out and help one another with. That's one way the Lord will sanctify you completely that you would live in a community of love that speaks the truth and points you to the word of God. So, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, he who calls you is faithful and he will do it. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.